When Paddington 2 came out back in January, many of us were too caught up in awards season to pay attention to a kind little animated bear. But those of us who saw Paddington 2 couldn't stop recommending it. That's because while they certainly work as Kitty Fair, the Paddington films have a lot more going on. They're more like the Babe movies than, say, Alvin and the Chipmunks. So now that Paddington 2 is available for streaming at home, we thought we'd catch up with the gentle and disarmingly funny Paddington universe. I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Stephen Thompson. We're talking Paddington 2 on this episode of Pop Culture Happy Hour, so don't go away. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Wix.com a web platform for creating your own professional website. With Wix, whether it's your first time creating a website or you're a longtime pro, you can do it yourself. Choose from hundreds of stunning templates or start from scratch with drag-and-drop technology and powerful web features. Join over 125 million people already using Wix to create their own websites. Go to wix.com to create yours today. So what will you create? Welcome back. With us this week to talk about Paddington 2 is writer and film critic Chris Klimek. Hi, Chris. Hi. Feeling gentle and disarming, Stephen. Nice, as always. Uh, Coming to us from Boston, from the Appointment TV podcast and the Two Bossy Dames newsletter, Margaret H. Willison. Hello, Margaret. Hi, guys. <laughs> it's, good to, it's good to hear your voice again. Good to have you back. So to give a quick plot synopsis mm-hmm. for those who are not plugged into the Paddington universe, I've got, <laughs> I've got this written down. Okay, so, so there's this bear. Okay, so Paddington is a bear. He's been adopted by a family in London. In Paddington 2, he gets accused of stealing a rare book and winds up in jail. Mm-hmm. Now you are completely caught up <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> on the Paddington universe. Right. Glenn, you have been clamoring for us to have a, a Paddington omnibus, a Paddingtomnibus, if you go. will. Since the first Paddington movie came out, mm. honestly, I did not have you pegged as a Paddington stan. Uh-huh. Tell me what gets you about these movies. Well, I mean, first of all, A, I got layers. B, <laughs> you mentioned in the in the pre-talk we did a little bit about how Wes Anderson-y these films are. Mm-hmm. And certainly in terms of visual composition, that is very, very true. There's also a tone thing. I think essentially the thing that makes these films for me, even though they are cute and twee and charming and disarming, is that there is an essential abiding Britishness about every frame <laughs> of this movie, which means there is a slight thread of sardonic nature going through <laughs> the films. Not too much to tip it into actual darkness, but it's always there. I mean, these films come from Paul King is the director and co-writer. He's from The Mighty Boosh. Hamish McCall, <laughs> the name right there should tip you off, yep. uh, who co-wrote the first film is uh, from Mr. Bean. Simon Farnaby, again, these names, co-wrote this film. Also appears in both films as uh, Barry, the creepy security guy. Uh, So uh, everything about these films has a kind of rides this very important line of just keeping it from being so cloying and sweet that it that it just tips over. There's a restraint here, an essential abiding rigor of Britishness that I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the cast, to sort of round out the cast, I mean, this family that adopts Paddington is uh, Sally Hawkins, yep. effervescent as always. <laughs> yeah, last seen uh, in Delicto Flagrante with some sort of amphibious uh, gentle beast in... Um, Shape of Water. Grinding Nemo, as I've heard it called on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, Paddington and uh, Shape of Water both star Sally Hawkins as somebody who befriends an animal. Mm-hmm. And they're, and both <laughs> movies have scenes where a bathroom fills up with water to its ceiling. Right, there and given go. that the water was out in my apartment intermittently for much of the weekend, just like all the water stunts in both the Paddington movies were really a little unkind. <laughs> like it was, uh... <laughs> yeah, you got all six British actors and then some. You got Eileen Atkins, Peter Capaldi, Brendan Gleeson, Joanna Lumley, Tom Conti playing 
Ring, Judge Gerald Biggleswade. So right on the nose. Right. Jim Broadbent, Julie Walters, Hugh Bonneville. I mean, it's it's so British. So British. All right, Margaret, <laughs> give me your thoughts on the Paddington world. So I had not watched these movies until I got the assignment from you guys, but I was really curious about them because of a phenomenon on Twitter that my friend Catherine pointed out, which is it was impossible to tell film Twitter's sarcastic tweets about The Greatest Showman apart from its absolutely sincere tweets of praise about Paddington 2 in January. And for like two weeks, it was just very disorienting. We couldn't figure out which was the Internet's Rebecca Black or the Internet's Carly Rae Jepsen. (laughs) (laughs) And much like Carly Rae Jepsen, I am now a permanent evangelist for Paddington. (laughs) These movies are so perfect. It was a real emotional attack on me because I just moved out of a place I've lived in for 10 years. And so all of the stuff about home and finding a home and needing a home was just like almost too melancholy for me to look at directly. I kind of had to watch the movies in 15-minute bursts and just give myself emotional breaks. <laughs> you and had I emotional think... breaks from Paddington yeah. too. Okay. Look, Stephen, you watched the movies too. Yes. Where's the lie? <laughs> I think Glenn is really right and onto something with the way that restraint in the material itself leaves space for like me to be completely unrestrained in my response to it. But because of that, it has such a walloping impact. All right. How about you, Chris? Well, I sort of went into this with the the Wes Anderson comparison planted in my head because that had been made widely. And for the, you know, the first little while, I'm thinking that that purely refers to the framing, to the symmetry of a lot of the images, the fact that there's this this really lovely sequence in, in early in the film where Paddington imagines to walking his Aunt Lucy through the streets of London and you see them walking through the pop-up book. In a but, pop-up book. Yeah, think, but all the right. buildings and the passing buses and things are two-dimensional and that was all all great. I mean, I'm, I think I've talked before about how I only reliably cry at Wes Anderson movies and I think it's it's because the emotional settings on the, the control panel there are tuned up to such wonky extremes. It so <laughs> little resembles real life that it just it, it's like it puts the, the spotlight on very minute, specific emotions. You know, so for the first maybe two-thirds of, of this movie, I was thinking that the, the Anderson connection just referred to the, the visual style. But I think it, emotionally it got there by the end too. There's a there's a, a reunion towards the end of the film oh. that uh, is very moving. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to flood the recording studio with tears. <laughs> wow, I did not, I, I, and I'm a crier. I'm a movie crier. This has been extensively documented. I just thought these were enormously sweet. I, uh-huh. too, uh, reacted to the reunion. I was kind of mouth agape in awe of how beautiful that pop-up book London yeah. scene is in this movie. It is so gorgeous. I could watch a whole movie of Paddington wandering through pop-up land. That scene gets at something essential about what these movies are doing, which is that pop-up book is just a MacGuffin, right? Like, it's there to motivate the plot and put various different things into motion. It doesn't need to have this just beautiful grace note of a scene where Paddington is imagining himself reunited with his like long lost aunt and just showing her around this place she's loved from afar for so long but never been able to visit and to invest that much visual beauty and impact into that book and to put all that emotion in that's what Paddington is doing that's extra Uh (laughs) in the best possible way. Well, and I think, you know, when we're talking about the tone and the feel of this movie and what this movie is is about, it's also just about not only the importance, but the actual power 
of kindness, of just kind of this fundamental goodness that this character has that allows him to move through a world that could seem very hostile to him. Mm-hmm. I think that has a cumulative effect that is very beautiful and very sweet. Now, I watched Paddington 1 and Paddington 2 back to back. I'd never seen either of them uh, over this past weekend. And I, I was struck by how much better I thought the second one was than the first. Hmm. I liked Paddington one. I thought it was very sweet, but it was like an elevated Stuart Little. Sure. This kind of animal outsider comes in, wreaks havoc. You have lots of scenes set to popular songs. At one point, there's a scene... Contemporary hits like I Feel Good by by James Brown. (laughs) Yeah. And Dreamweaver. And it's not Dreamweaver. It's some other 70s era ballad. But these are, yeah, way, way overplayed. I mean, at one point, when you hear I Feel Good... You know, you get a sense like, okay, this is this is this you kind of feel movie. the hand of some studio right. executive saying, oh, we need to we need to punch this up. Somehow. Right. And so I felt like the first one was an elevated studio kids movie. <laughs> the second one does away with a lot of that music, increases the amount of Calypso music on yep. the soundtrack yeah. uh, that I think is that I think is a really nice it just gives the, the movie a, a, right. an even warmer feel. And that, feel. that felt like, uh, um, I'm going to mispronounce his first name, but is it So George in uh, The Life so Aquatic, another, mm-hmm. another Andersonian touch to the way the camera will pan over. You, you think it's you know non-diegetic music. Or diegetic music, I always use this term incorrectly, <laughs> yeah. but then the camera pans and there are the musicians who are performing the song. Or like Jonathan hearing. Richman and there's yeah, something yeah, about yeah, Mary. Yeah, yeah the uh, band shows up in these scenes. Another area in which I think the second movie is a great improvement on the first is in the villains. Mm-hmm. In the first Paddington, you have Nicole Kidman, who has just stepped off the set of 101 Dalmatians <laughs> and, and is doing this thing you've seen before, right? Yeah, I have no complaints uh, about Nicole Kidman in a blunt bob. Right. <laughs> and I think in Paddington 2, your villain is Hugh Grant. Yes, he is. And you get peak... Hugh Grant as faded dandy mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, that his his later career has has been bringing us in spades. I mean, if you, I don't know how many of you saw Florence Foster Jenkins, mm-hmm, sure. but he is also a faded dandy in in <laughs> in that. He, obviously, he was a cad in Bridget Jones's Diary. He yeah. has definitely leaned into the the jerkier side. Yeah, I was I was all in on that immediately. Yeah, it is absolutely the apex of Hugh Grant's late in career heel turn. He's so funny, and his timing and delivery of the lines is just incredible. Particularly, there are long sequences where he's having conversations with himself as different characters, and he commits to the bit so entirely that it's seamless. Yeah, absolutely. This is the role of a lifetime for him. I want to push back. I want to push back, though, because if you think about how much work the first Paddington film does in terms of creating this hermetically sealed universe where this tone thrives. Yes, okay, so you get I Feel Good, but mostly these films have a timelessness to them. Stephen, you and I have talked a lot about You to Ant yes. or, or <laughs> the Shrekiness of, right. of some of these kids' films. This completely avoids that, and in the opening minutes of the first Paddington film, we get jokes about imperialism and immigration, yeah. and there is a thin line, I don't want to overstate it, but there is a queer component to this storyline. There is a queer tone here, not just because it's Ben Wishaw, not just because it's some cross-dressing. <laughs> there's a there's a outsider otherness that it's it's kind of playing with in a real way, and that is maintained, even though it's done in different ways, throughout. And Hugh Grant, of course, plays into some of that as well. I would agree with you, and I think particularly how artfully, I mean, like, it's remarkable to make a story that's this 
timeless, that also is engaging with elements of Britishness that are a whole lot more toxic yeah. <laughs> than we typically think of. So, I mean, like colonialism, imperialism are all very present in the establishing story of how, you know, this bear from darkest Peru ends up in England. And the way the movie engages with all of that and sincerely brings it into part of the story without necessarily sacrificing this idea that there are some aspects of Britishness that, like, we're right to idealize. The narrative that is given to Paddington when he arrives at the train station is about the Blitz and is about children who were just sent into the country during the Blitz of World War II with little name tags on, and families just took them in. Now, Obviously, that's a very sanitized myth, and that was a much more complicated story. I'm wearing my history major hat now. But you're getting a real sense of that and the way that myth is important. But I don't think it's erasing the ways it's complicated and the ways it's messy. While still being appropriate for a kid's movie, I found that quite impressive. Yeah, this is displaying a level of self-awareness that is not winking at the audience. But of course, as as you mentioned, Margaret, he comes to London with this notion of they will not have forgotten how to treat a stranger. He comes with this idealized version of what London and what society will be like, and he is disappointed from the jump. That is about something. That is a statement. That's part of the narrative here. Now, Margaret, I have a question for you. Have you read the Paddington uh, storybooks? Shouldn't I have as the children's literature (laughs) expert on this podcast? Mm -hmm. Yes. Have I? No, (laughs) I haven't. I'm really curious about, because again, Paddington is a a property not well-known, or at least certainly not as well-known in the States as it is in Britain. And uh, it is a beloved property in Britain. It It hasn't made its way to these shores yet, and it now has in a big way, but it comes with all this other extra stuff that is purely cinematic. And I'm wondering how much of that is in the actual original books. Right. I did look into some of this, and the story is all the same. But from what I've been doing reading-wise, the level of engagement that it has with sort of the colonialist implications of how Paddington ends up in England and what relationship his aunt and uncle have with British mythology is native to the movie, not native to the books. Like, the fact that it is kind of messy to have these bears in Peru who meet a white person (laughs) and suddenly come to learn to be polite and appreciate British culture right. and leave the jungle to be in England, which is perfect. Uh-huh. You know, like, that's a that's a complicated story. Right. That's a lie England told about itself for a really long time. Uh-huh. Yeah. And to bring that forward into the 21st century and manage to somehow keep the emotional hook of that without repeating all of the lies that went along with it is really kind of impressive. And to channel my friend Glenn Weldon, there are jokes. There are jokes. <laughs> and I, so I, many good jokes. <laughs> there's a, in the very first movie, we meet the family when they get off the, the train and they're coming back from their day trip and the family is very bored by what they've spent the entire day doing. And Hugh Bonneville, who is great in this, so good. Uh, says, well, I, for one, enjoyed the Victorian wool experience. <laughs> and it's like, that's what I mean about the self-awareness. There's, there's something yeah. so charming and you steer directly into the twee so hard you come out the other end. It's yeah. just, it's fantastic. 
I hear you completely, buddy. I'm glad that we decided to delve into Paddington. Well, we encourage everyone at home to spend a, a summer day with uh-huh. these uh, with these movies. They are a lot of fun. We were very curious to hear what you all think about Paddington. Uh, find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH. Uh, that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow Chris at CT Clinic and Margaret at Mrs. Friday Next. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And of course, thank you for listening. We will be back here on Friday with a discussion of Oceans 8. And if you have a second and you're so inclined, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people to find the show. We will see you back here on Friday. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.